Well, good morning, Harvest. If I don't know you, uh, my name is Seth Jewell. I'm one of the elders here. And today we're going to be continuing in our summer series on the Minor Prophets. We've covered a lot of them. Uh, Zechariah and Malik, or, uh, Micah and Hosea and Joel and Habakkuk. And has been told to you throughout this series, these minor prophets are called minor not because of the level of importance that we should attribute to them or lack thereof, uh, but rather because of their length. These books are generally shorter than the major prophets, and so for that reason we call them minor. Well, today we are going to cover the minorest of the minor prophets. We're going to cover the shortest of all the minor prophets. In fact, we're covering the shortest book in all of the Old Testament at a whopping 21 verses, and that is the book of Obadiah. So if you would, turn with me there, and while you're uh, turning, I'm going to give you a little bit more time than I would if I asked you to find Genesis. The... While you're turning there, I just want to ask, how many of you have heard a sermon out of the book of Obadiah or memorized a passage of scripture out of the book of Obadiah? Got about four hands in the room. I, I couldn't have raised my hand before today, I'll be honest with you. Um, Bill Garner called me and he said, hey Seth, we have a lot, we're doing the summer series, we have a lot of the pastoral staff who are going to preach, but we really want a lay elder, someone who's not, you know, a, a vocational pastor to, to deliver a message as well. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, what's the series? He said, Minor Prophets. I said, okay, I think I can do that. Uh, can I choose which minor prophet that I get to preach on? He said, yes, absolutely. I think that's fair. And I said, okay, how about Hosea? And he said, no, Kenan's going to do that one. <laughs> and I said, okay, how about Habakkuk? And he said, no, Steve Winstead's coming back from Ethiopia. He's going to do Habakkuk. I said, Bill, if I get to choose, what are my options? What's left? And he said, Obadiah. And so here we are. You have the one guy who's not a professional preacher, who's given you the most obscure, shortest book in all of Scripture. You are in for a real treat today. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, uh, as I've studied this book, I'm actually thankful. The Lord has been faithful. He's really taught me a lot. Uh, I've been really convicted as I've worked through this, and I hope that the Spirit moves this morning and that we all are. Uh, so I think the Lord wants to show us something here. As I mentioned, this book is only 21 verses long. I debated on whether reading all of it, but I won't do that. What I'd like to do is take a few excerpts. We'll exposit the entire book, but let's read a few excerpts from the book that'll really drive the entire theme and get us all the way through it. So if you would stand to your feet as we read from God's word, we're going to start in verse three of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and the lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Skipping down to verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it should be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. 
and it shall be holy. And then verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You can be seated. Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning. I pray your spirit would move and that we would be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I know many of you are probably curious how we're going to exposit that passage. Um, This seems like, upon first glance and first reading, a very particular declaration of destruction on a very specific people in a very specific time for a very specific sin. Uh, And while that's certainly true, there's a lot more, more going on here beneath the surface, which to really understand, we have to understand the backstory. So the book of Obadiah is really a continuation of a saga and a story that has stretched from the very first book in the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way through the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi. It's the story of two nations, Israel and Edom, two people groups, those who are God's people, the Israelites, and those who are not God's people, the Edomites. But behind this story is a backstory. It's a extended story of two men, Jacob and Esau. As you'll recall from Genesis, these two boys were born of Isaac uh, and later, and they couldn't have been more different. Uh, At at their birth, you recall that Jacob was a smooth baby and and Esau was a a hairy little thing that came out. As they grew older, Jacob was mama's boy, Esau was daddy's little man. Jacob, Esau loved to hunt, he loved to be outdoors. Jacob preferred to sit in his tent and play on his iPad. They just, they were stark difference in these two boys, even as they grew into manhood. But it wasn't just their differences that really led to this conflict that we see throughout the Old Testament. It was really uh, two things that occurred. One, uh, Jacob's purchasing Esau's birthright, and then ultimately Jacob stealing the blessing that belonged to Esau through deception. That really set the stage for what would be the generations of conflict that we see appear from Genesis to Malachi. You know, this was a big deal. Uh, The person with the birthright was considered the head of the family. They were the leaders in the family. They had judicial authority uh, to rule over disputes within the family. And they really were representative of the spiritual head, the relationship with God in the family. And so when Esau sold his birthright, this was a preview of what would be Esau's position throughout the Old Testament. He traded a a relationship with the Lord, the spiritual responsibility of his family for the desires of his flesh. His pride got in the way of what should have been a devotion to the Lord. Well, it wasn't just that. As time went on, of course, Jacob used deception to also take the blessing and deceive his father for the blessing that was intended for Esau. And that was really the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. You can read about it in uh, Genesis 27 and 28. The scripture actually says that Esau held a grudge against Jacob. He said, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to mourn my father, and then I'm going to kill Jacob. And it it was this grudge, this bitterness, this unforgiveness that he harbored. Now listen, Esau was wronged. Esau was wronged culturally, societally. Esau was stolen from. He was not given what was due to him. His brother used deception to steal from him. 
The world will say, he has every right to harbor some bitterness, to be unforgiving. I mean, he, he was wronged. Um, be careful. The world would say, he needs justice. Be careful. Danger. As Esau leaves in Genesis to go find a wife, we can see the seeds of bitterness and unforgiveness being sown into the soil that would later bloom into a nation that harbored those same two positions and attitudes. The issue was not that Esau was wronged. It wasn't about Esau. It was that Esau was unwilling to be submitted to God's will, which was the choosing of Jacob. Now in Genesis 25, we learn that Esau was actually given the name Edom. And we know in Genesis 32, after Jacob wrestled with the Lord and after he was broken and humbled, he was given the name Israel. And the nations that came from these two men, the Edomites and the Israelites, carried on that same conflict that stemmed from bitterness and unforgiveness and pride. The Edomites rejected Moses' request to pass through the land of Edom on their way into the promised land in the book of Numbers. The Edomites um, opposed King Saul in 1 Samuel. They fought with King David in 1 Kings. They rebelled against King Jehoram. There is this constant conflict in the Old Testament that we see. And then in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God sums it up. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And I'm summarizing here, I'm paraphrasing, but God says, look, and the Edomites may try to rebuild their nation, they may try to build it back up, but I will utterly destroy them. I will continually tear them down. And listen, these are strong words from the Lord. God says, the Edomites will forever be known by the world as the people against whom the Lord is indignant forever. The people against whom the Lord is indignant forever. That's a strong statement from God, and it begs the question, why? What is it about the Edomites? Why does God take that such a, such a strong position against them? That's what the book of Obadiah makes very clear to us. That's the, that's the answer that we get from the prophet Obadiah. The answer to those questions and the trouble with Esau and the Edomites, Obadiah tells us in verse three, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The answer is pride. God is not indignant toward Esau and the Edomites because they were not the chosen people. You can, there's one thing to not be chosen and there's another to be not submitted to God's will, okay? God was not indignant toward them because of that. It was because of the pride in their hearts, because Esau was unwilling to be submitted to God's will. And the Edomites are an ultimate example of the result that happens when the pride of man is allowed to take root in his heart. You see, pride is the root of all human evil. It's the foundation of our flesh. It's the antithesis of godliness, of Christ-likeness, of holiness. It's the opposite of those things. Pride is the core of what is at war with the spirit and the life of the believer. It's what pulls us away from walking in the fullness of the spirit. This is one of the mega themes of scripture, one of the five mega themes. You see it throughout. God will deal with pride. He will 
humble the proud, and he will exalt the lowly. You see it throughout Scripture. Pride's what got Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. Pride's what got Cain. Pride's what got Nebuchadnezzar. Pride is what got Esau. This is something we repeatedly see throughout Scripture. So this is not one we're going to outgrow, okay? This is not one that's just going to stop being a struggle for man. This is something we need to deal with. This is something we need to understand because it's as relevant now as it was then. Listen, pride is hard. It's easy to say, um, especially in our day and age, yeah, I know we're not supposed to be prideful. I already know that. I'm not prideful. I might have a little bit of selfishness, but I'm not prideful. Um, Listen, don't, don't miss this because pride can be very, very subtle. And it can hide itself in terms of virtue. And we just need to be on guard. We need to understand what it is because we do not want to have the indignance of the Lord directed towards us. So first, let's define what this is. Pride is, a J. Vernon McGee gives a definition that I think is pretty good. I'll read it for you. He says, pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. Pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. Now, I certainly think that's true. I would build on that a little bit. I would say it's also the attitude of a life that demonstrates an unwillingness to be submitted to the will of God. Those things go hand in hand. An attitude that declares an ability to live without him is not going to demonstrate a willingness to submit to him. Uh, But I think those two are the definition of pride in the heart of man. And when it begins to form, the first thing that occurs is self-deception. Look what Obadiah says. The pride of of your heart has what? Deceived you. Self-deception begins to occur. Deception about yourself, your view of yourself. Deception about others and your view of others. Deception about your view of God. The lofty view of God that you should have is taken down. The lowly view of yourself is then inflated. You know, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells us what the greatest commandment is. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are wrapped up in these two commandments. Pride of heart and the self-deception that occurs will impact your ability to fulfill those two because it's gonna distort your view of God and distort your ability to love him properly. It's gonna distort your view of others and distort your ability to love them well. Pride undermines all of it. And so how does this manifest? What can we learn from the Edomites to be on guard against? Let's, let's walk through a little bit of what Obadiah tells us. Look at verses three and four, and really verses eight and nine as well of the book of Obadiah. Edom's posture towards God was one of self-sufficiency. The very end of verse three, who will bring me down to the earth? They boasted in the fact that their city, the city of Petra, the capital city of Edom, was carved into this mountainside. They were high on the mountain. Uh, They had a rock fortress. It was accessible really only by a very narrow cave-like path that you can only get one horse width through. It was very difficult to penetrate. They boasted in that. They also boasted in their wisdom. Edom represented men of wisdom. Wise men came from Edom. Eliphaz, who went to Job and comforted him and represented wisdom, came from Taman, which was a city in Edom. They boasted in that. 
They said, look what we've built. Look how untouchable we are. Look how smart we are. Look how wise we are. Who can touch us? Nobody can touch us. This was the posture of the Edomites. They had an utter lack of recognition that they had any dependence on the Lord. We're wise, we're impenetrable, we're strong. They, they saw no need for God. That's the first way that pride manifests itself. It causes man to not see a need for Christ in his life. When you don't see a need for him, you're certainly not gonna seek after him. You're not gonna come to know him. And when you don't know him, you're not gonna love him. You're not gonna fulfill that greatest commandment. And listen, the response to them from the Lord is strong. I'm summarizing, I'll summarize for you verses, you know, four through eight or so. And he basically says, look, when thieves come, they really usually only take what's valuable. They leave some stuff behind that's not going to be of value to them. When, when grape gatherers come, they, they usually leave a few gleanings behind. Eat them, I'm leaving nothing. I'm going to utterly destroy you. Everyone will be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Again, strong response. God is indignant towards this type of attitude, this attitude of self-sufficiency, this attitude of I don't need God in my life. And this attitude is not always blatant. This can be very subtle. When a prideful person hears the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, you know what the prideful man hears? Very subtle difference here. Apart from Jesus, I can't do everything. I can do some things. I can certainly accomplish some things on my own. Um, but yeah, I might, need, I might need a little Jesus. It's not what he said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The prideful man can't see that he is utterly dependent on God, that he is worthless without God, that he is despicable without Christ in his life, that he is bankrupt without Jesus. We are hopeless without Christ. But the prideful man can't hear that even from the mouth of God. We do this just like the Edomites did. We think, look what we've built. Look what we've done. We are so wise. We have overcome. Uh, we don't see a need for dependence on the Lord. And cultural wisdom of our day, because pride is kind of hidden in modern American culture in very virtuous terms, um, Modern wisdom would say that we should boost confidence and performance by encouraging and celebrating uh, the prideful man. We celebrate people for being a self-made man or a self-made woman, and, and that's the danger with pride, is it masks itself. But self-sufficiency is really just a code word for pride. It's a lack of seeing a need for Christ in your life. This, this is a real struggle for me. Okay, I, I grew up in West Memphis. I came from a broken home. My, my parents divorced when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, my mom was a single mom. We really had no money. She worked a lot to try to give us what we had, and it still wasn't enough. And today, fast forward, I, I have a great career as an attorney with FedEx. And the world would say, look at this. This should be celebrated and really in my flesh and in the pride of my heart, I want to be celebrated. I'd love to be loved, but this is very dangerous. This is a struggle of my flesh. This is very dangerous for me. 
Because it would be very easy to say, look what I've built. Look what I've done. And not recognize the providence of God in my life, the protection of the Lord throughout my upbringing, the guidance of the Spirit as I navigated adolescence and college and adulthood. It would be very easy to just fall back on the world's celebration and say, look what I've done. But it's dangerous because the indignance of the Lord is against those who have the pride of life. I told you pride impacts our ability to fulfill this greatest commandment of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That starts with this attitude of self-sufficiency, an attitude of not needing God in our life. So one manifestation of pride then and now in Obadiah's day and in our day is this idea of self-sufficiency and that's the one that impacts our love for the Lord. Now, it also disrupts that second greatest command. As I told you, it distorts our view of ourselves and certainly our view of others so it impacts our ability to love others. It impacts our ability to fulfill the second greatest command in our life. And Obadiah really shares for us four ways that it impacted the Edomites in that way. So let's look at those. Look at verse number 10. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob. Violence is a manifestation of pride, okay? Pride, when you're, pride is centered on self. It's centered on self-image, self-protection. And when something challenges that self-image, the pride of man lashes out to whatever it is that is the challenge or the threat. We see physical examples of it, sure. The woman who is stricken by her husband, the child who is beaten, but this is more than just physical violence, okay? The Hebrew word here that is used is Hamas, which could be literally translated as violence, but also could be translated as oppression, cruelty, injustice, wrongdoing. So understand, this certainly can manifest in physical ways, but it can be emotional cruelty and oppression, when we lash out at others in these ways because of a threat to our self-image, because of the threat of our pride. And I, I would argue this is pride in its most evil form. When your flesh takes over and fills your heart, you may see no problem intentionally hurting another person, physically or emotionally, in order to protect yourself, in order to protect the image that you have built. I recently heard a story, and I don't know the name or where he went to church, but I recently heard a story of a man at a local church here in town who had built for himself this image of really perfection, of righteousness. He served the church, he gave this air of servant-heartedness, he had this picture of a perfect marriage, a picture of perfect fatherhood, he had the great job, but it was all a facade. You see, this man was in the midst of a long-term affair uh, and his wife had found out about it, and she was going to leave him and out the affair. Word of this affair was going to break. And it caused a big threat to the image that he had worked so hard to build and was working so hard to maintain. So he thought it would be better for him to hire somebody to kill his wife in order to keep her silent and maintain that image than it did to deal with the consequences of his sin and reconcile to his wife and reconcile to God. In his mind, somehow it made more sense to protect the image that he created than it did 
to deal with his sin. That, that, is, that is pride. That is the manifestation of pride. Luckily, this guy, when he went to hire someone to kill his wife, he hired an FBI agent. And now he is in prison and his wife is just fine. Uh, but the point here is pride can manifest itself in violence because we don't love others as Christ called us to. We don't love others as we love ourselves. Again, pride impacts our ability to fulfill that second greatest commandment. What else does Obadiah tell us? All right, going from verse 10 to verse 11. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates. Listen, I'll sum this one up. Obadiah said, you were indifferent. On the day you just stood there, aloof. You just stood there and watched as Jerusalem is ransacked. This is the man who sees injustice happening all around him. He sees God's people being... um, Satan at work disrupting God's people with violence, with oppression, and yet he just stands idly by and doesn't take action, right? This is, this is the opposite of what we heard last week. You remember last week, Wes preached to us on Micah 6.8, and Micah 6.8 really called the believer to do three things, the first of which was to do justice, not to love justice, not to talk about wrongdoing in the world, not to um, talk about how important justice is or how people aren't being loved, but to do it, to lay our life aside for the sake of protecting another, to lay our reputation down at the sake of protecting someone else's, especially a fellow believer, a brother, a sister who's in the midst of oppression, laying ourselves down. For Edom, that was their sin. This was a result of the pride in their heart. They stood there, inactive, indifferent, as Jerusalem was ransacked because they didn't love others as they loved themselves. And they harbored bitterness towards who they viewed as their enemy. There's certainly a more subtle piece to this as well. I, I, I want to paint the picture for you that pride's very dangerous. And it's very dangerous for us to say, okay, that doesn't apply to me. Because you might say, well, I'm certainly not indifferent to wrong in the world. I mean, I'm not indifferent to injustice and, and wrongdoing. I, I'm anti-abortion. And that's great. But first, the call is not to just talk about and hold particular values. We're not called to just view things in a certain way. Okay, we're called to action. We're not called to talk about how others aren't loved. We're called to love others. Indifference towards the needs of others, inaction in the face of evil is a manifestation of pride in our life. Are we more concerned about our own image or are we more concerned about God's image? Are we more concerned about our own reputation or more concerned about the reputation of a fellow believer or God's reputation who might be on the line? If the answer is the former, then pride is interfering with our ability to live out that second greatest commandment from Christ. All right, moving on. Let's look at verse 12. What else does Obadiah tell us? Don't gloat over your brother's day. Don't uh, rejoice over his misfortune. Um, Don't boast in his distress. Don't gloat over his calamity. You see, uh, not only was Edom standing aloof, they were doing something. They were boasting in the fact that who they viewed in their enemy was being taken down. 
The psalmist tells us in Psalm 127 that they weren't just standing there. They were screaming out, raise Jerusalem, raise Jerusalem, as the Babylonians moved in and started to ransack the city. Edom was glad to see Judah in trouble. They were happy about the misfortune of the Israelites in the day of the exile. Because of the pride in their heart, they were happy to see the fall, the pain, the grief. It's a sad reality that accompanies pride. When we harbor unforgiveness and bitterness, the fact that we were wronged becomes more important than anything else. And if those that that wronged us, that committed this wrongdoing, ultimately face some sort of hardship or misfortune or struggle, our response is always, they had that coming. They had that coming to them. Kind of boast in it a little bit. We're kind of happy about the fact that justice is served. You know what Proverbs says? Proverbs 24 says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when your enemy stumbles. It's the opposite of what the Edomites were doing. Listen, I said earlier, Esau was wronged. Cultural wisdom would be demand justice. It's not what the Bible demands. He was wronged in every way. At the end of the day, though, it's not about whether or not Esau is wrong. It's not about whether or not you are wronged. It's not about you. It's about forgiveness. It's about giving up your pride, your self-image. Because when we harbor that bitterness and that unforgiveness, let me tell you, that allows Satan a point of entry into your heart. And what results is that he will plant a seed that will take root and that will grow and will result in a lifestyle of sin. It will distort your view of everything. And you'll face, and we will face, if we're not careful, when we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, when it takes root as pride, we will face the indignance of the Lord just like the Edomites did. We have to be careful. That's what causes this, letting that in. Pride is why our flesh instinct is to rub salt in someone else's wound. It's why we take a perverse delight in seeing somebody else's failures or faults. That's the opposite of love for others. It's the complete opposite. It's the opposite of fulfilling that second greatest commandment. All right, let's look at the last manifestation of pride that Obadiah presents in verse 14. Let's go back to the end of verse 13 and end of verse 14. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. The Edomites were literally stealing from the Israelites while the Babylonians were moving into the city. The Edomites were exploiting Judah's vulnerability in order to build up their own kingdom and their own wealth and their own security. They would take advantage of the misfortune of someone else in order to contribute to their continued protection and perseverance. They exploited them. They exploited Judah. The point here is that pride will lead people to do horrific things, take advantage of others in the midst of their hardship, if doing so means furthering your own kingdom. To uh, succeed in business, many men often resort to dishonest methods. It is a per- it's pervasive in our society. 
Subtle dishonesty for personal gain at the expense of someone else. Look, I, as an attorney, I have an ethical obligation to my clients. That's true now. It was certainly true at the time I was in private practice. And probably the biggest area of ethical compliance for an attorney relates to billing. Especially in private practice when you're billing by the hour. When can I bill? When shouldn't I bill? I mean, ethics really hinge on that question. When is it appropriate to bill? What can I bill for? I know I can only bill when I'm doing work for somebody. So when I'm in the office next door talking to a friend about how great the Arkansas Razorback basketball team is, I can't bill for that. That's an easy one. But what about if I'm being paid by client A to go take a deposition in Phoenix, and so I'm on the plane, and he's paying me for my time on the plane, and at the same time, I pull out my computer and I start writing a brief for client B, now I've got, I'm doing two work, two work for two people at the same time. Who do I bill? Can I bill both? Can I bill t- both for the same hour? I'll tell you, double billing is not permissible. It's unethical. Even if an attorney does multiple tasks for multiple clients, you should only bill for one block of time, um, even if you have to split it between the two. But this is an area, according to the ABA, the American Bar Association, that they see more legal malpractice claims year over year. Because what happens is a subtle situation presents itself. An opportunity to take advantage, not just of the situation, but of others. Take advantage of those clients. You know in your heart it's wrong, but you exploit the situation because doing so means furthering your own kingdom, improving your own income, building your own career, getting further ahead for your own sake, but at, but at their expense. You see, this can present in very subtle ways, Harvest. We have to be careful. So five manifestations of pride that really impact our ability to love, our ability to love God and fulfill the greatest commandment, our ability to love others and fulfill the second greatest commandment. That's why God was opposed to Edom. There was a spiral of sin that occurred beginning with a root of pride. James 4, 6 answers the question, why is God indignant toward this people forever? James 4, 6 answers that question in the same way Obadiah does. He says, God is opposed to the proud. I told you, that's a mega theme of scripture. You're gonna find it throughout. God is opposed to the proud. But Harvest, we have hope. I don't wanna doom and gloom. I don't wanna leave you thinking, man, that's something I struggle with. Because this is the battle between spirit and flesh in the life of every believer. You're not alone. But we still have hope as believers. We still have hope as followers of Christ. And that hope is found in humility. You see, there's another part to that verse that I mentioned, James 4, 6. He said, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The ultimate example of that, the best picture of that, is Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, who, it says, you're supposed to have the same attitude in you that was present in Christ Jesus. What was that attitude? It was the attitude of though being in the, existing in the form of God, not even considering equality with God something to be grasped. It was the attitude of emptying himself and taking on the form of a man. It was the attitude of uh, humbling himself to the point of death, death on the cross out of love for you and for me. That's the attitude of Christ that we're supposed to have in ourselves. And because of that, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And we're supposed to have the attitude of Christ in ourselves because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What we know and what is made clear from Obadiah through this declaration of destruction toward the Edomites is that justice against the proud will be carried out. Justice against the wicked will occur. But we see a restoration at the end of Odiah play out as well. A restoration of the house of Jacob in response to their brokenness, in response to their trust in the Lord, dependence on God, because God will exalt the lowly. Look at verse 17 with me. But on Mount Zion will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Who are those that escape? It says on Mount Zion will be those who escape. Who are those that escape? You remember when Sam Kreitz preached to us a couple of weeks ago, he preached out of Joel and talked about the day of the Lord. And one of the passages that Sam mentioned was Joel 2.32. And 2.32 says, I'm going to read it here. It says, it shall come to pass uh, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Those who escape as discussed in Obadiah are the same ones who escape as discussed in Joel. This is the same picture, different prophet. It's those who call on the name of the Lord. They are saved. There's a stark contrast between the posture of the Edomites in verse 3 and those who call on the name of the Lord. There's a stark difference between who can bring me down and I am utterly dependent on you, Jesus. There's a stark difference between the attitude of the Edomites and the attitude of Christ, which we're supposed to have in us. Between who can bring me down to the earth and I lay my life down willingly for the sake of the church. There's a stark contrast. That contrast is the difference between pride and humility. Obadiah's whole message, his whole warning the whole declaration of destruction that we read is meant to be a wake-up call for us to not be like the Edomites. Don't let pride take root in our heart. Humble ourselves. Call on the name of the Lord. Because read verse 21, and we'll end here. The very end. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's how Obadiah ends it. The kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the opposite of pride. This is the exact opposite of pride. The pride of man tells us to build up our own kingdom, to do it at the expense of others, to exploit others, to use violence when threatened. I mean, this is what the pride of man says. What Obadiah tells us is, is that if you do that, if you do that like the Edomites, then your kingdom will be destroyed just like theirs was. God will be indignant towards the proud. He will, low, he will humble the proud. Because the only kingdom that has been and forever will be is the Lord's. We should rest in that. Rest in the fact that if we humble ourselves, if we call on the name of the Lord, we can be saved into his kingdom because harvest there is no other kingdom. As Obadiah said, the only kingdom that has been, is, and ever will be is the Lord's. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word pray that you would remember your promise that your word would not return void. I pray that we would be transformed by it, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that you would convict us. 
that we wouldn't try to disregard the conviction of your spirit, but we would be cognizant of the subtle manifestations of pride in our life so that we can uproot it and pursue humble lowliness before you. We're prostrate before you now, Lord. Forgive us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.